Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the 1920s, after oil was discovered beneath their land, the richest people per capita in the world were members of the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma. Then one by one, the Osage began to be killed off. And many of those who dared to investigate the killings were themselves murdered. As the death toll climbed to more than 24, the relatively new FBI took over. It was one of the organization's first major homicide cases, but the Bureau badly bungled the investigation, and in desperation, the young director, J. Edgar Hoover, turned to former Texas Ranger named Tom White to unravel the mystery. White put together an undercover team, and together with the Osage, they began to expose one of the most chilling conspiracies in American history. The book is Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage India Murders and the Birth of the FBI. The author, David Grand, joins us for the hour. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and best-selling author of The Lost City of Z, which was chosen as one of the best books of the year by New York Times, Washington Post, and other publications. And he's author also of Devil and Sherlock Holmes. His work has garnered several honors, including the George Polk Award. David Grand, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on the show. We appreciate you uh, being with us. This is a fascinating story, and... and uh, I, I think not well known. How did you come across this? Yeah, so I um, had never uh, heard about it, uh, and in 2011, I was chatting with an historian who mentioned it to me. And at the time, I did not know that the Osage were the wealthiest people per capita in the world back in the early 20th century. I did not know that they had been serially murdered, and I had not known that it had become one of the FBI's first major homicide cases. And at the time, I traveled out to the Osage Nation Museum. And at this point, um, I really wasn't sure if I was going to do a book. I was really just seeing if there was a story there. And I visited the Osage Nation Museum, and they have this great panoramic photograph on the wall. I was taken in 1924. It showed white settlers, along with members of the Osage Nation. And it seemed very innocent. And I asked the museum director um, why there was a portion of this photograph that seemed to be missing. One side of it seemed to have been cut out, uh, and she said it had contained a figure so frightening she had decided to remove it, and she then pointed to the missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there, and it turned out that one of the killers of the Osage had been standing there, and, and that's really what the book grew out of, of trying to understand who that figure was and the history he embodied. Mm. I'd like to uh, go back to a little bit of history, uh, and the history of the Osage is not unlike uh, the history of many other Indian nations, except perhaps for this, you know, the, this oil. And that's uh, we'll get into that. But the Osage were moved off their lands, right? Originally put onto uh, this uh, part of Kansas that no one else wanted, and then moved on after that when uh, when I guess white settlers wanted that land too. Yeah, so um, the Osage had once controlled much of the Midwest of the country, all the way from Kansas to uh, to um, the edge of the Rockies. And um, in, eight, in the early 1800s, uh, President Thomas Jefferson uh, referred to them as the Great Nation. And he actually met with a delegation of Osage chiefs in 1803, and he promised he would treat them as friends. But then, as with so many American Indian nations, they were rapidly driven off their land. They were forced to cede more than 100 million acres of their territory. And as you say, they were bunched up in a reservation in Kansas when they were once more under siege and forced again to sell their lands. And it was then they searched for a new homeland, and an Osage chief stood up, and he said we should move to what was then Indian Territory, would later become the state of Oklahoma. And he said we should move to this territory because it is rocky and it is infertile, 
um, and essentially the white man considers it worthless, so he'll leave us alone, and my people will be happy there. And so they migrated to the territory. They actually bought it. They had a deed to their land. Um, the migrations at that point had taken a tremendous toll. It was only about 2,000 or a little bit more Osage at the time. And they resettled there. And then, lo and behold, the seemingly forsaken territory turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest oil deposits then in the United States. So that leads to this very interesting uh, history. The early 1900s, the Osage begin to receive quarterly checks, which then increase in value and they become rich. Yes, yeah, so um, um, each one of these uh, Osage um, who were on the tribal roll had what was called a head right, and a head right was essentially a share in the mineral trust, and a head right could not be bought or sold. So much of the Osage surface territory eventually disappeared into the hands of whites, as, so, as happened with so many uh, American Indian territory. Um, but um, the head rights couldn't be sold, so the Osage maintained control what became really the world's first underground reservation. And any time a prospector wanted to lease land or uh, for oil, they had to pay the Osage uh, for a lease and also pay in royalties. Many of the great oil men that we know, J.P. Getty and his family, first struck oil in Osage territory. Harry Sinclair, um, uh, E.W. Marland, um, they would gather for these auctions um, where they would bid on leases under a tree that became known as the Million Dollar Elm. And so the Osage began to collect more and more money. And just to give your listeners a sense, by 1923, they these few thousand Osage collectively receive what will be worth today more than $400 million. And so they're, they're sitting on this, you know, gold mine, this oil mine. Um, and I, I was, of course, I read the synopsis to the book before I dived into it. But even without reading that, you know, I could have guessed, knowing the history, that this isn't going to end well, right? That somebody's going to want that, that money and uh, the Osage are, are not valued highly. Yes. Yeah, so the Osage, um, they lived in mansions. They had servants, many of whom were white. It was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. And now this, of course, belied uh, longstanding uh, stereotypes of whites. Uh, I'm sorry, this belied longstanding stereotypes of Native Americans. And it provoked all sorts of reactions uh, from Americans around the country. And there was a great deal of prejudice. The U.S. Congress went so far as to pass legislation requiring many Osage to have white guardians, which is really outrageous. Um, and this system was quite literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were uh, a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent and given this uh, guardian to, to manage your trust. Um, and it also created a criminal enterprise where many guardians swindled money. Um, and then, of course, this was the backdrop to what became these really sinister crimes, where in the 1920s in particular, the Osage began to be targeted for their head rights. Uh, there was poisonings, there were shootings. Um, I write in particular about one woman uh, in the book whose name was Molly Burkhardt, and she's really a remarkable woman. Um, and her family begins to be systematically targeted. Uh, first, her sister disappears, and she found a week later in a ravine with a bullet in the back of her head. Her mother dies then of suspected poisoning. She had a younger sister who lived nearby, and one evening uh, in the middle of the night, uh, Molly woke up, and she goes to the window because um, she could hear a loud explosion, and she looks out in the direction of her sister's house, 
and she could see this great orange ball rising into the sky. And it turned out that somebody had planted a bomb under her sister's house, uh, killing not only her sister, uh, but her sister's husband and a white maid who lived in the house. Yeah, it's just incredible. It uh, must have been chilling to, to live through that. Molly Burkhardt is a, a remarkable figure, admirable person. Yes, very much so. Um, and she's really an astonishing woman. She was born in the 1880s. Um, she was grew up in a lodge, which was like a wigwam. Um, she spoke Osage, only Osage, and practiced Osage traditions. Then, at the age of just seven, uh, the U.S. government uprooted her and forced her to attend a Catholic boarding school. They forced her to remove her Indian blanket uh, to catch the white man's tongue. Um, and then within a few decades, because of the money, uh, she's living in a mansion. She's married to a white settler. Uh, and in many ways, she straddles not only two centuries, but two civilizations. Yeah, that, that was interesting uh, as well. And and again, uh, that, you know, typical of, uh, of, of a lot of uh, Indians, I, I suppose, straddling the two cultures. And especially, I wonder, maybe we could... Uh, Take us a brief side trip here before we get on to the narrative. Um, what did the that wealth, this kind of sudden wealth, uh, do to uh, traditional ways of living and, and traditions of the Osage people? Yeah, so this was a really a, a, a period of great transition and upheaval uh, for the Osage. Um, because of the wealth, it drew in uh, many, many migrants. Um, all these oil boom towns were kind of created Almost overnight, um, uh, one town was known as Whizbang, and it was said it was called Whizbang because people whizzed all day and they banged all night. And, um, and many um, uh, of the traditions began to dissipate. There was a lot more intermarriage. Um, Molly was interesting because her mother was really one of the last, the traditional Osage, who still spoke Osage, practiced all the Osage traditions. Molly really tried to straddle those traditions. Uh, she still dressed traditionally. But, of course, she has a foot in both of these kind of colliding cultures at the time, which was not unusual. Unusual. Early in the book, you have an interesting scene. Uh, Molly Burkhardt is, is hosting a dinner party. She invites her mother-in-law, uh, her husband Ernest's uh, mother, who is overtly racist and will say racist things at the, at the table. Very much so, and is kind of revealing. And, you know, one of the things researching the book, which was helpful because of there were so many uh, different investigations over the years. So many people were questioned. Um, and because of that, um, you could really get a sense of what was happening in that day in the house. And you had testimony from the aunt who was interviewed, who was expressing outrage that her nephew um, had married uh, an Osage. Um, these Osage were then often referred to as the Red Millionaires or the plutocratic Osage. And, of course, she's very upset by the fact that there's a white servant in the house who is serving her. And so she is reminded of this kind of new social order that is taking place in the town. Yeah, that's interesting, an inversion of social order, because, uh, you know, some of the servants are, are, are white. Yes, and that, of course, uh, provoked all sorts of uh, strong reactions among many whites. And, and of course, many whites scapegoated the Osage for their wealth. Mm. Um, I got it wrong. It was the aunt, right? The, not the mother, but uh, um, yes, it was the aunt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to take you back early in the book. A couple of murders. Um, one of them, as you mentioned, is Molly's sister Anna, who is found a dead bullet hole in, in the in the head. Um, and this illustrates uh, the way law enforcement was at this time, right? The the an inquest is 
Summit immediately. Uh, citizens uh, crowding around the body, contaminating the crime scene. Uh, Yes, one of the things that really surprised me um, during the research was to get a sense of just how lawless uh, the country still was back then, even in the 1920s, um, how poorly trained um, law enforcement was, um, and how um, law enforcement was often kind of even left to citizens because there had always been fears of a national police force in the country. And so there is this inquest in which uh, various, uh, in this case, white citizens were rounded up, including some young boys are put on the inquest. Uh, A couple doctors are called up um, to try to find evidence. And of course, what would happen in these cases, often because of poor training on these crime scenes were completely contaminated, but even more perniciously there was an enormous degree of corruption, and this really was a conspiracy. And so evidence would often disappear as it was stolen um, and absconded with. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, bring in the uh, the law enforcement and, and the FBI. This is a very interesting story of the early FBI and to continue with these uh, the, these mysteries. Uh, the book is Killers of the Flower Moon. Subtitle is The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. The author is David Gran. He's a previously best-selling author of The Lost City of Z. Um, by the way, before we go to break, uh, Lost City of Z has been made into a film. That is correct, yes. yes. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think uh, of the made, film? A, I was very happy with it. They made a wonderful movie. It's a great compliment to the book. I hope it'll lead people from the movie to the book and the book to the movie. And Killers of Flower Moon, I think, has been optioned. Yes, yes, and um, they have hired a very talented screenwriter, and um, there's some talk, uh, it's so early on, but that maybe Martin Scorsese would direct it, which would be wonderful. Oh, that would be, yeah. Well, let's take a break. We'll come back with more following this break. Did you know that children with autism can learn to communicate and play with other children when they receive early and intensive intervention? Research has shown that programs based on the principles of applied behavior analysis can help children with autism reach their potential. By identifying each child's specific strengths and weaknesses, professionals can create individualized programs that give the child the opportunity to practice appropriate behaviors and receive positive reinforcement. Through early intensive behavioral intervention, children with autism can learn the skills necessary for success in kindergarten and beyond. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with author David Gran. He is author most recently of Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. You just joined us. We're talking about a fascinating story that David Gran has researched and, uh, and brought to a wider public. In the 1920s, after oil was discovered beneath their land, the richest people per capita in the world were members of the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma. And then one by one, the Osage began to be killed off, and many of those who dared to investigate the killings were themselves uh, murdered. And as the death toll climbed, the relatively new FBI took over. So a lot going on here. 
Uh, I want to talk, uh, jump in, David Grant, here in this segment uh, to the the involvement of the FBI. Uh, first of all, the well, I guess the first question here is: um, this is essentially a you know a, an ongoing massacre. It's a serial uh, murder of the of the Osage. Uh, which would have been, of course, big news there in, in that county and in Oklahoma. Did this get play uh, among the wider public, among the, the U.S.? So um, early on, um, many of the killings uh, went on for years, and they did not receive uh, co- coverage nationally. It was focused uh, more locally. Um, but by 1923, after the death toll climbed to more than 24 Osage, that was the official death toll. It had begun to finally get more attention. Um, and also after several people who tried to investigate the crimes were themselves killed, perhaps most notably when a settler who, an oilman who was close to the Osage, went to Washington, D.C., hoping to get federal authorities uh, interested in the case. Um, he checked into a boarding house in the Capitol. Uh, he received a telegram uh, from an associate, actually, in Oklahoma at the time that said, be careful, and he carried with him a Bible and a pistol. And he stepped out of the boarding house that evening. He was abducted. At some point, a burlap sack was wrapped around his head. His body was then found the next morning in a culvert. Uh, he had been beaten to death and stabbed more than uh, 24 times or 22 times. And it was then that the uh, Washington Post reported what the Osage already knew, um, and in a headline it said, conspiracy to kill rich Indians. Hmm. Uh, so Molly Burkhart does, she's pretty persistent. She does try to uh, get to the bottom of this, and she does enlist the help of an influential uh, relative. Right, William Hale yes. is an interesting character. Yeah, so Hale is this uh, person who kind of showed up in Osage territory at the turn of the century, at the beginning of the 20th century, a man with seemingly no past, uh, poor, riding a horse, uh, possessing little more than kind of his ragged clothes. Uh, And within a short span, he kind of reinvents himself. And uh, he becomes, over the years, a powerful cattle baron and really the most dominant figure and settler uh, in the region. Um, He was seen as a benefactor. Um, He was extremely powerful politically. He became known as the king of the Osage Hills. And so she turns to him. He is the uncle of her husband. Uh, and obviously him being so powerful, she seeks his help, hopefully, in trying to solve these cases and stop the killing of her family members. Ultimately, there's not success in in uh, solving these, these murders. Uh, how, how, how did the FBI get involved? So um, by 1923, again, after the death toll had just continued to climb over years, and many of these cases were neglected because of prejudice, because the victims were Native Americans, and also because of corruption. Um, the Tribal Council issued a resolution uh, asking for federal authorities to step in, and it was then that the case came to the attention. It was taken up by an obscure branch of the Justice Department at the time. It was then known as the Bureau of Investigation, and it would later be renamed, and of course we know it today, as the FBI. And remind us why the FBI was formed, was formed by Theodore Roosevelt, right? Yes, it was formed as the country became more integrated um, and as um, it became more of a federal country, not just the kind of patchwork of local communities as highways and trains connected them. There was a growing sense that there was a need for a national police force, uh, some force that could kind of have multiple jurisdictions, 
um, and also address some of the feelings in local policing. And so uh, the Bureau was created, but it really was still a pretty ragtag operation. It had just a smattering of field officers across the country. Uh, they were not actually authorized to carry guns, and they didn't even have the power to make arrests. If they wanted to make an arrest, they had to go to a, a local sheriff or police officer to arrest somebody. Um, and uh, um, and they also had very limited jurisdiction over crimes. Um, it was really just a hodgepodge of cases. Um, but they had jurisdiction over American Indian reservations, and that's why this case fell to them and why it became one of their first major homicide cases. And uh, in 1924, a young, very young, J. Edgar Hoover takes over. Uh, he's he's going to return rectitude, right, or, or impose rectitude. The, you remind us that uh, by that time, the FBI had been become known as Department of uh, Easy Virtue. Yes, yes. So the Bureau was, was not only a ragtop operation, it suffered from many of the same problems of a lot of police departments around the country. Uh, there was a great deal of corruption. Um, there was bribery. They had been caught up in the Teapot Dome scandal, which is another oil corruption scandal. Um, Hoover is named director in 1924. Uh, he is only 29 years old at the time. Um, and initially, he hopes that this case might help cement his position. Uh, but the Bureau badly bungles the case at the outset. Um, they fail to make any arrests. Uh, perhaps most notoriously, they get an outlaw, a guy named Blackie, out of jail, hoping to use him as an informant. And instead, he, he robs a bank and he kills a police officer. And it's hard to believe today, knowing you know that Hoover will go on to become our most autocratic bureaucrat in the history, uh, was then insecure about his power, and he feared that a, that a scandal might end his dreams of building a bureaucratic empire. Yeah, this is high stakes for him, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, he, and this is just fascinating history, he turns to uh, a man named Tom White. Tell me about him. Yeah, so... Um, uh, Tom White is a fascinating character, and in many ways he is like Molly. He straddles two centuries. He was born uh, in a log cabin on the Texas frontier. I uh, came from a family, almost a tribe, a lawman. His father had been a sheriff. When he was a little kid, he saw criminals hanged. Um, he and his brothers would all go on to become lawmen. Uh, they served with the Texas Rangers, uh, often at a time when justice was meted out by the barrel of the gun. And then by the 1920s, when he suddenly summoned to headquarters by Hoover uh, during the Osage murder case, um, you know, he has to wear a, sedu- a suit and a fedora, and uh, he's learning to adapt modern techniques of detection like fingerprinting. And, of course, he has to file paperwork, um, which he can't stand. Yeah. <laughs> and the, so he, he come up with, comes up with a plan. He's, he's going to bring some uh, agents in undercover. Yeah, so when he takes over the case uh, in 1925 after the Bureau had really badly bungled the case, um, and he realizes that Hoover had summoned him uh, in many ways to save Hoover's skin. And it's important to point out that at that time, uh, Hoover was purging many of the old agents. He was trying to professionalize the Bureau. Many of the old um, frontier lawmen were being purged, but he kept on the ranks a few of these old frontier lawmen like White and a couple others um, because they actually had real experience, and many of the college boys he was hiring they were said to uh, type faster than they shot. And uh, the old frontier lawmen would refer to them as uh, Boy Scouts. Um, and so they kept white on. Um, they were known as the Cowboys. 
And White puts together this undercover team, as you mentioned, uh, recruiting from the Cowboys. Also, most interestingly, he recruits an American Indian agent who was probably the only American Indian in the Bureau at the time. And given the dangers, he realizes they need to go in undercover. Um, and they pose as cattlemen. Uh, one poses as an insurance salesman and, according to the record, sold actual policies, although I have no idea what happened to those policies. Um, and they begin to uh, try to see if they can find out who the killers were. One of the agents was part Ute Indian, right, to be of interest yes. to people in Utah. That, exactly. Uh, he arrived as a, a medicine man, I think. Uh, the story was he was yes, helping he to find his relatives. Yes. yes, he posed as a medicine man who was looking for relatives, was friendly with relatives in the region. Um, and it was important because he was able to gather information from the Osage that the Osage might not have told some of the other white lawmen who were seen as being corrupt or um, uh, you know, had, there was a great deal of suspicion. So as they go about this, of course, there's there's a lot of danger. Uh, Osage are being killed, and not only Osage, but uh, people who are trying to solve the the case. Yes, there was even a um, a, a lawyer who had tried to gather evidence uh, about the murders uh, when there was an Osage who was dying of suspected poisoning in Oklahoma City. He had gone there. He met with him, uh, gathered various evidence he had. He then had called um, authorities back in Osage County and said, I'm taking the next train. I have enough evidence to, to get one of the killers. Um, and then he got on the train, and they waited for him to arrive. And, and when the train arrived, he wasn't there. Um, they then sent out the bloodhounds looking for him. Boy Scouts looked for him. His body was later found along the side of the tracks, and he had been thrown off the train. Um, and so there was a great deal of danger um, for White and his undercover team. Even though they weren't authorized to carry guns, they did carry guns. In many ways, it was less of a criminal investigation than an espionage case. There were moles, there were double agents, there was a fear of a triple agent. Uh, the reports were leaked. Uh, they were being followed and trailed during their investigation. So um, what was the working theory, that the, that the Osage were being killed for their oil? Yes, there was no question that they were being systematically targeted with people with head rights, um, the the share in the Osage Mineral Trust. And ultimately what they did is they followed the money, Um, and in particular in the case of Molly Burkhardt's family, to see who was financially profiting one by one by these murders. And ultimately it led them to somebody who Molly knew very well. It led them to the uncle um, of her husband, and it even led her led them to her husband as well. And what it revealed was that these crimes are really deeply intimate. Um, They involved, they were inheritance schemes. And so what they often involve are people marrying into the families and then systematically uh, targeting uh, uh, members of that family. And so one of the things that made these crimes so sinister was they involved people pretending to love you while they were systematically plotting to kill you. No, they're just tragic. It's tragic. Um, so, uh, let's return to, to Molly. Um, tell me a little bit more about her during all of this. She, she you know, must have, uh, you know, central figure in your book chose her to, to focus on. She, she must have been fearing for her own life. She was, and, and she really, um, and I don't always say this explicitly in the book, but, um, I hope it comes across, which is she had remarkable courage. She crusaded for justice, um, um, and here she is, she's Osage and she's a woman. And so her views at that time were discounted by the white 
authorities, the men at the time, and yet she kept pressing. She would issue rewards. Um, she hired private detectives. All the while, this put a bullseye on her, and as time went on, uh, she too was slowly being poisoned and became a target of the conspiracy. So uh, the, uh, this moves along, and then and finally the, the case is, is solved, right? It's, it's pretty surprising, the, the, the end result. Um, so... Uh, I want to return to the FBI. This, this in the end, becomes the success that uh, J. Edgar Hoover is looking for? Well, it does, um, in the sense that Hoover, um, they were able to capture some of the killers. Um, and, of course, the big, one of the bigger challenges was not just capturing them, it was actually prosecuting them. And there was a real question about whether uh, a jury would convict a white person at the time for killing Native Americans. And they were able to get a couple convictions. Um and, and Hoover quickly uh, closed the case, and he saw this as a great triumph, and he, and he used the case to kind of build his own reputation, the reputation of the Bureau. Um, but uh, one of the things I try to show in the book is that he, he really closed the case prematurely, and that there really was a much deeper and darker conspiracy that the Bureau never exposed. Yeah, and you do reporting on that, right? That, that, uh, that there, was, there, was, there was more to the story. There was far more to the story, and that this really, the theory was, the, the, the Bureau's theory was that there was kind of a singular evil figure uh, responsible for these crimes. And what evidence would show through the archive years, my kind of looking through archives and interviewing uh, descendants, uh, Osage descendants of, of mysterious deaths, that, the, that this really was less a story about who did it than who didn't do it. And that there were, in fact, many, many more killings than previously uh, documented and that uh, there really was almost a culture of killing, and that many people were complicit in these crimes, and that the real death toll was in the scores and perhaps even hundreds. So this is you can see this as a you know an allegory for the for the broader sweep of of history, right? The uh, Indians and the white men living uncomfortably side by side, and and then a conspiracy because the Indians had they had the wealth. Yeah, I mean, this really is, in many ways, a microcosm of the forces and the clash that played out. Um, what's remarkable is that these forces are playing out all the way in the 1920s, and we're not talking about uh, colonial times, but this story really is a microcosm of um, this history. And, and, and yeah, I think it's an important history to reckon with. I mean, to this day, you have descendants who I interviewed about both the murderers and the victims living in the same neighborhoods. And their history and their fates are intertwined. And in many ways, that is the story of America. And then the, you, we began the conversation talking about this this picture, this portrait, part of which had been cut out. Uh, and that, you know, takes my mind to metaphor as well. Who as well. We, we yes, cut out because, part of the history. Yeah, you know, it contained one of the killers and contained somebody who Molly knew well. Um, and one of the things that was very striking about that to me was that the Osage had removed that picture not to forget, uh, as so many Americans had, but because they can't forget what happened. And yet here, so many Americans, and I include myself in this, either had no knowledge about this and what had transpired uh, or had forgotten about it. Hmm. Let's take another break. I want to come back and pick up that thread right there. The, the 
you know, forgetting and remembering, sometimes purposely forgetting, right? So I want to pick that up, um, and we'll have more of this conversation with David Gran, his uh, author. He is author most recently of Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. More following this break. that you'll take a few minutes to fill out a new listener survey. You'll be able to tell us what your favorite programs are, what issues you'd like to see covered, and ways to improve our service. This is the last week the survey will be available. You can find it on our website, upr.org. That's upr.org, and thanks. This is Ted Twinting, and I am a development officer with Utah Public Radio. Underwriting with UPR allows you and your business to capture the attention and ears of informed, educated, and savvy consumers across the state of Utah. To learn more about becoming a sponsor with UPR, call our development team at 435-797-3141. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival in Logan. Utah presents Pirates of Penzance, a story of comic of age, romance, and pirates, a comical farce and classical operetta combined, July 8th through August 9th. Details at utahfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with David Gran. He is a best-selling author of The Lost City of Z, uh, among his earlier books. And the latest book is a fascinating book. It's uh, nonfiction, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the uh, FBI. And we have another uh, about 15 minutes left in this conversation. You can join us here if you would like. I'd love to get your comment or question at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, at upraccess uh, as well. So before the break, David Grant, we were talking about, you mentioned uh, forgetting and remembering. One of the purposes of this book is to to, to restore this this story in the in the broader sweep of the history of uh, our interactions with Native Americans. Yeah, without question. I mean, I think in some ways I was addressing my own ignorance in that. You know, I was shocked. How could this not be something I read in school or was taught in school that was not part of our history? You really can't understand the formation of this country and not just the birth of law enforcement, but in many ways the birth of a modern country without understanding the stories like this. And it is a long and tragic history, and, and some have wanted to purposely forget chapters, I believe. Yes. I mean, I think much of this history has been neglected often because of prejudice. The same way these crimes were uh, neglected. Um, and I think it is important to understand. So, for example, um, during the uh, protests and demonstrations at Standing Rock, um, I interviewed, and this was after the book came out, but I interviewed uh, an Osage person who was a veteran of the Army. He received a Purple Heart in Afghanistan. His name was Chris Turley. And he set out on a quest. He walked almost all the way from Oklahoma uh, to, to Standing Rock to participate in the demonstration. And he told me that he, during that quest he thought a lot about the Osage murders. And to him, it's still in many ways the same fundamental issue. I mean, the details are obviously very different, but it's about the rights of Native Americans to protect their sovereign lands. And so, again, to understand things like Standing Rock today, I think it's important to understand cases like this. Uh, I want to quote here from a review of your book by Louise Erdrich. 
Um, she says, as Native Americans fighting to protect resources on the remnants of our lands, we confront the same paternalism, hypocrisy, and greed that destroyed Osage lives and, and culture. As you mentioned just there, it's, the story continues. Yeah, you still see this history reverberating and, and playing out um, at places like Standing Rock. And it was really interesting when I was in Oklahoma uh, talking about the book um, at many of the events, uh, descendants would come, and there were descendants of both the killers and the victims in that room. Um, and you could still see how this history is playing out. One of the people I interviewed was a woman named uh, Margie Burkhardt, who is the granddaughter of Molly. Uh, and she told me what it was like to grow up without cousins and aunts. Um, she told me what it was like for her father to grow up in a house of secrets. And talking to her, you really get a sense of how this history is still living today. That must have been fascinating, talking to the to the descendants, as you mentioned, of the Osage and and the, I guess, descendants of people who are part of this conspiracy. Yes, and and it was it was kind of remarkable. One event in Tulsa, I did. Um, there was again there was descendants. Margie was there, and there was also a descendant of the so-called devil who had appeared in that photograph and uh, stood up and and uh, she kind of expressed remorse for what her ancestors had done, and at one point then walked over and gave uh, Margie a hug. And um, But again, I do think it's why it's important that these histories um, are understood if you're going to have this kind of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about that reconciliation. There are some who say, for you know, about whatever, about slavery, about uh, Japanese Americans, about uh, you know the history of the Native Americans, who say, uh, you know, let's just stop digging this up and up and up. You know, it wasn't wasn't me, it was my ancestors, perhaps. It wasn't me, let's move on. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm, a, you know, a big believer that you learn about um, human nature, you learn about society, you learn about your country through history, and you learn about it through both the good and the bad. And you know, this is a story that has a great deal of evil, but it also has a great deal of goodness in it as well. Um, you know, m- the story of, of Molly Burkhart and her quest for justice, the story of Tom White and his quest for justice. And so I think if we're going to uh, understand our country, we're not going to repeat mistakes of the past. If we're going to understand events like Standing Rock, I really think it is important that we reckon with this history. Um, otherwise, I do think we are in many ways doomed to repeat the past, but I also think you get a better understanding of our country. And one of the things that researching this case taught me was just how important it is that we become and remain a country of laws, where justice is impartial and the powerful are not able to tilt the scales of justice. Um, And so by knowing that, you end up being vigilant about the rights and the, and the institutions you have that protect those rights. I want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the rest of the story. We, we'll you know, preserve uh, some of the mystery uh, here, but uh, I want to uh, talk about Molly Burkhart. Uh, what, what, uh, what became of her? She's the central figure. Yeah, so um, one of the most interesting documents I found um, was a document from, I believe it was 1934, if my memory serves me correct, and she died in 1936. And so this was just two years before she died. And it was a document in which she uh, appealed her uh, incompetency, and I put that in quotes. And uh, it was 
a document that said the court had finally deemed her, quote-unquote, competent. And so here she was at 1934, two years before she died, finally granted the full-fledged rights of an American citizen to control her own fortune and to control her own destiny. Um, and I thought that was an incredibly revealing uh, document. And she did die a natural death, at least the evidence indicates. And uh, what is nice, uh, she also found love towards the end of her life and remarried. Oh, that's yeah, that's a good, <laughs> good uh, ray of sunshine in the midst of darkness. There. Um, what about the the Osage and the oil? You know, we don't hear today. At least I don't hear today about uh, about the oil wealth. Did the did the oil run out? So um, much of the oil money was swindled during these crimes. It's hard to put a figure on it, but it was in the millions and millions. And um, and then um, over time, a lot of the oil was depleted. And so um, there is still some oil production in Osage territory, um, but it's just a fraction of what it once was. And, you know, in Osage, you might have a portion of a head right, you know, may receive a few thousand, maybe even as much as $40,000 in a year if there's more oil, but um, it's not the millions that it once was. But I think it is important to understand that the Osage remain an incredibly vibrant nation. They have their own democratic institutions. There are 4,000 or so Osage who still live in the area. Um, there are about 20,000 altogether who have voting rights in their democratic institutions. They have found other sources of income, including uh, from casinos, that helps provide health care benefits and education. And as an Osage lawyer told me, we were victims of these crimes, but we do not live as victims today. Mm. I want to have you talk a little bit about uh, a writer I know you admire, um, John Joseph Matthews. Yeah, he's a, a really a lovely writer who I was not familiar with until I began doing research. He's really the prose poet of the Osage. He's almost hard to categorize. He wrote a novel called Sundown, A Coming of Age. He wrote essays. He was also like an anthropologist. He would collect a lot of oral histories. He was part of Osage himself. Um, he also wrote uh, about nature. Um, he's really an exquisite stylist. And early on, when I went out to um, Osage Territory, I met another writer, a lovely writer, um, and he told me, you know, if you really want to try to understand the Osage, if you're going to write this book, you need to, to read John Joseph Matthews. And so he really became kind of, he never wrote about the murders themselves. He was so upset, apparently, by them. He actually did not really write about them. But to understand the Osage, to understand that period of history, to understand the landscape, how it affected their consciences, to understand their oral traditions. Uh, he really was an essential guide. Um, but the great pleasure is he's just a beautiful writer. So uh, having to go back and read him over and over, as I did, uh, would gave me great pleasure. I just want to read, uh, 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 this is the beginning of, uh, you quote him, uh, the beginning of Chronicle 1, The Marked Woman, the first section. There had been no evil to mar that propitious night, because she had listened. There had been no voice of evil, no screech owl had quaveringly disturbed the stillness. She knew this, because she had listened all night. That's John Joseph Matthews. Yeah. Yeah, yeah be- you beautiful. You get a sense of his, his beautiful and his images. And, you know, the, the, the title, which may seem a little mysterious to people before they read the book, Pillars of the Flower Moon, um, came out of reading John Joseph Matthews because he has a book called Talking to the Moons, and it, it describes how um, the Osage had a name for a moon, uh, every, named every month after a moon. 
And the month of May was really known as kind of the little flower killing moon because during that period, all these beautiful um, little prairie flowers like Johnny Jump Ups and little bluettes would spread on the prairie and it looked almost like a confetti. Um, but then the taller plants would come and take their light uh, and water and those little flowers, those beautiful flowers would perish. And of course, the first murder of Molly Burkhart's family member Anna takes place in the month of May. And so the title of the book even grew out of reading John Joseph Matthews. Hmm. What, uh, what else strikes you about Osage uh, culture that you've, you know, you did a kind of a deep dive into this, I'm sure, in your research? You know, um, I would go out uh, to the dances. Um, uh, they still uh, practice their culture um, to a great extent, and they're even reviving the language. Um, and I would, um, you know, during my research, I often would rent. There's a little boarding room in downtown Bahaska, which is kind of the center of the reservation there. And uh, I would stay there, and I would go for the dances um, because it was a wonderful time because many of those would travel from all parts of the country and give me a chance to meet many uh, descendants. Um, you know, I really could not have done this book without the Osage. Um, they were um, so remarkably generous to me. Um, I spent about five years researching and writing the book. Um, they provided me a great deal of evidence in many cases um, about mysterious deaths in their families, um, and they also provided a great deal of friendship to me over the years. Mm. I want to uh, maybe try to draw a connection, have you draw a connection between the the books that you have written. The first book was a, a collection, you know, a, kind of a unified collection of your reporting for The New Yorker, right? Um, yes, that was the, called "The Devil and Sherlock Holmes." Fascinating title, <laughs> uh, with with some you know fascinating stories there. Uh, the next book is a bestseller, "The Lost City of Z." And then we have "Killers of the Flower Moon." I'm not sure if are you working on something else coming up. I'm working on a new story for the New Yorker magazine right now. Uh, it's a story about an explorer, and I'm looking for a new book projects. So if anybody has any ideas, please uh, email me then. <laughs> that that brings me to my next question. Uh, these stories are so fascinating. Um, I guess you, it just takes time and detective work, luck to find these. Yes, I always say that. Great, if you're passive, you'll never find the idea. You really have to be aggressive in searching them out. So I will read lots of local newspapers um, and. I will try to speak to as many people as I can and bring a little notebook with me. And I will cold call people um, who I think might be interesting. And in fact, I heard about this story when I learned that there was a historian uh, in the Bureau at the FBI at the time. I thought, oh, that's so strange. There's a historian in the Bureau. And I actually uh, called him. His name was John Fox. Is John Fox. Nice guy. And I just said, hey, I'm a writer. I'm often looking for stories. Are there any interesting cases in the Bureau's history that really haven't been written about him. We talked about a bunch of things. In the very end, he mentioned the OCH case, and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I think, you know, you have to kind of search for the story ideas if you're, if you're going to find them. They won't just come and find you. How'd you find The Lost City of Z? For people who don't know, that it was a bestseller, so a lot of people do know, but uh, it's the true story of uh, British explorer Percy Fawcett, story of obsession and his travels in the Amazon. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's about Percy Foss, who's kind of the last of the great terrestrial explorers, uh, Victorian Edwardian explorers, who mapped the Amazon and then came to believe there was an ancient civilization, which he called rather cryptically the City of Z, where he would have said the City of Z. Um, and in 1925, he went out to search for it with his son and his son's best friend, 
and they dis- they disappeared, and it really launched kind of one of the great exploration mysteries of all time. Um, and that story, interestingly enough, I came across while researching a story that's actually in the, my collection, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes. It's a story about the mysterious death, it's a true story, of the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes scholar who was found mysteriously garroted uh, in his apartment, uh, in his house in London. And all these other Sherlock Holmes fanatics took up the case trying to solve it. And in the, in, during that research, I read everything about Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And I came across a reference that Percy Fawcett had helped inspire Conan Doyle's novel, The Lost World, and one of the characters in there. And so I said, huh, that's curious. I'd never heard of Percy Fawcett. And then began to research his story, and that's what led me to him. Hmm. And that is a fascinating story now, as we mentioned before, out in a in film version. Um, I want to uh, take you to an interesting kind of series in the New York Times where they interview uh, authors, um, and they, they they did one with you, um, David Grand. By the book, by the book is the the title of the series. Well, I don't know if they asked this of of all the authors. They did ask you. I was interested in this. Uh, if you could require the president to read one book, what would it be? What, what was your answer? Yes, so the the book I recommended was. Cormac McCarthy, The Road, which is just a kind of a remarkable novel. And I suggested it in part because, you know, it's an apocalyptic novel, a dystopian novel, um, but really is a reminder of the fragility of our civilization and how fragile it is and why it's so important to protect. And then, of course, I added the joke. He's a minimalist writer, and his uh, sentences are about the length of a tweet or shorter, so I thought it might be appropriate for the president. <laughs> What, what's your? I was curious. What's your take as a writer on on the current president? We've had presidents who are quite literary uh, minded. We've had presidents who are not. Uh, I think most would agree that our current president leans toward the latter. But as you just mentioned, he is a writer of sorts, just in you know very short. Bursts. Yes, in very in very short tweets. I mean, I you know, as somebody who has studied history, and I've also used to cover politics. I don't really do that much anymore. But early in my career, I covered presidential campaigns, um, covered John McCain, uh, covered Al Gore, I covered uh, 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 Second Bush, um, I covered a lot of congressional races. I think like most Americans, have never quite witnessed uh, a politician or somebody who um, is quite like this. I mean, I think it defy, it, it's a cliche, but it really does, he does defy um, so many of the kind of cultural traditions that we are used to uh, for a politician. So I think like most Americans, um, it, it's a destabilizing process to try to keep up with. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, uh, you know, commonalities and, sim- and differences. You've, you've addressed differences. I guess one commonality is ambition. You've got to have a lot of ambition to run for president. Yes, you do. And, I, you know, I think, you know, you know, I, my book is set in a time period, and this isn't necessarily a direct comment on the president, but I do think there, just the way we talked a little bit about understanding Standing Rock, and, and you can't really understand that without understanding those age murder cases, I think you, you can't really understand our legal institutions and the evolution of the Bureau and the FBI without reading about this story, and I, I think that has some resonance today because, you know, one of the things you realize in looking back on this case was um, the struggle to create impartial law enforcement and professional law enforcement and how dangerous it becomes when it becomes politicized. 
and you realize the value of that, and you realize um, what happens when it is corrupted. And so one of the things I think is important for all Americans, uh, you know, today and in this climate where um, we are so partisan and we kind of challenge truth-gathering organizations that um, we realize the fragility of some of these institutions and why we have them and why they're important to protect. Yeah, I think that is uh, something a lot of people are, are thinking about uh, these days. Uh, finally, in the same piece, they asked you, what do you plan to read next? You, and you recall what your yeah, answer was? So, yeah, so, uh, well, um, it was funny. I was, you know, I have what I call, I call my, by my, my, bed at night, it looks like basically a geological site because I have stacks of many books that pile up and they're kind of different um, strata and layers to the books. Um, I was thinking about, uh, is a book I've been thinking about reading forever is a, a book by uh, Norman Mailer. It's a huge book, Harlot's Ghost, and I've been, it's very daunting looking and I've been trying to get to it and I was thinking about it, but then my daughter, uh, my lovely daughter uh, came to me and she said she wanted to read To Kill a Mockingbird. So we, uh, in fact, we're still we're not quite done uh, reading it together. And it's been wonderful to read that book. You know, I read it, uh, you know, probably, my goodness, I'm getting old, 40 years ago, 35 years ago. I don't know what it was. But um, to read it today uh, and, and uh, has been wonderful and to be able to read it with her and share that. It's a, it's a reminder of kind of the wonder of books when you get to share these things with them. Oh, that's wonderful. We have reached the end of our conversation. David Grant has been with us. He's uh, author previously of the best-selling book, The Lost City of Z. The uh, latest book is fascinating. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage, Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. <laughs> Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.